Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast, an extended edition. This is no podlet, this is a full podcast. I'm James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've got George Belshaw with me um, and our respected and well-known, renowned, some say notorious tennis coach, Calvin Betton, will be with us very shortly indeed. Um, we're going to be looking at the semi-finals of the US Open. We'll look ahead to the final. I appreciate this. Might not land in your feed until after you've seen the women's final. Um, but we'll talk about it anyway, and you can see just how wrong we got it. We'll start with the women's final, so that if you are listening hurriedly um, before Jabour versus Shontek, you can at least get that out of the way. Um, just quickly, I want to give you an update on fantasy tennis, um, which is obviously pretty much the main concern when it comes to George's uh, fortnight during Grand Slams. Um, it's been it's pretty interesting. Well, it's been interesting for me because I've actually done quite well, which is a rarity. As you, you've raced knows. past me and Calvin. Yeah, well, I wasn't going so well. And then Francis Tierfo did me a few massive favours. Uh, so I'm now actually up to 14th with, uh, with I think, uh, well, go on, George. I was going to say, the, the pendulum really swung for me in terms of our kind of three-way race when TFO beat Nadal because I've I'm, I've been like three points behind Calvin with the same players. Um, and if Nadal had just won that and gone to the final, as I was expecting, I would have won out of the three of us. But that, that result really swung it in your favour. And, and now you're going to win out of the yeah, three of us. So I think, that I was think the key I, match of the tournament. Between I think I'm clear. I'm, I'm two points clear of Calvin. I think we've yeah. both got Iga Shontek. Um I think I'm sorry, right in saying, as of last night, it is wrapped up at the top. Kaza uh, is three and a half points clear. Uh, I think if Francis Tiafoe had won last night, that would have made things quite interesting. Diego Punto de Break 
might have, uh, have overhauled Kaza at the top, but not to be. Uh, just run you through Kaza's team. Carlos Alcaraz, Cam Norrie, uh, Nick Kyrgios. Now, I'm going to say this guy's name. Well, Wu Yibing is how it's written. I spoke to an expert on Chinese tennis the other day. It's not how it's pronounced, but unfortunately, I'm not even going to get close to how it's actually pronounced. Uh, she also had Andy Murray, Igor Shontek, Coco Goff, Caroline Garcia, Isla Tomlanovic, and Linda Noskova, who laid an egg. Um, so, congrats, Kaza. Uh, tennis and Bones is in second, but I think can be overhauled if Ons Jabour wins the final. Um, so, a few nervy moments, perhaps, for Tennis and Bones. Uh, congrats also to Diego Punta Break, Susie Powell, Team Ross, uh, Hannah. Uh, in the dirt like a dog, hoping I can stay awake to watch. Um, probably the most sleep-deprived person, uh, apart from maybe me. Uh, yeah, well done to everyone who uh, who's played this year. It's been it's been a, a busy one. While I lost our three-way battle, James, I would like to say I did beat the people I actually bet bottles of wine with. So I've won two bottles of wine from my friends Matoko and Michelle. So it's not been all bad, despite losing our. Uh, our contest for pride. Listeners can sleep easy knowing that you are two bottles of wine to the good. Um, but they won't sleep easy if they don't hear about the women's final that is coming up. It's Ons Jabeur against Iga Shontek, the number five seed against the number one seed. Um, two previous Grand Slam finalists this year, of course. Jabeur reached the final of Wimbledon. Uh, Shontek winning the French Open at Roland Garros. So... There's some kind of consistency there, which is what we're always asking for in the WTA. Uh, just to look back at the semi-finals briefly, they were on uh, Thursday night here in uh, New York, so overnight on Thursday. I actually was thinking that some people may not even have seen them, uh, so uh, I thought I'd quickly fill you in on them because I was there, uh, which is sort of the point. Um, the pick, I thought, would be Garcia Jabour, and it was a complete non-starter. Uh, Caroline Garcia played really poorly. It was really disappointing. Um, Ons Jabeur played well. She served extremely well. You know, Garcia standing inside the baseline is all well and good. But when Jabeur, who she, actually Garcia mentioned after she got quite a low ball toss and quite a hard to read serve, and she was hitting her spots. In fairness, and when you're stood a foot inside the baseline and someone starts hitting their spots. Um, yeah, well, it ends one way. Amazingly, her box were sat there telling her to come further forward. And they were like, no, 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 get get closer to the service box. That'll help, which I'm not convinced it would have done. Um, but yeah, Jabor won 6 one 6 Shrontek beat Sabalenka 3-6, 6 one really was very poor in the first set. She wasn't really striking the ball. Uh, it was all over the place. And then in her own words, she went off to the toilet and sorted herself out. Um, she, she had a, a sort of accidental overshare in her post-match interview and then apologised and said, sorry, that's disgusting. Uh, but then she also said she gave herself a bit of a pet talk and did some problem solving. And she was brilliant in that second set and, to be quite frank, the third. But Arena Sabalenka will wonder what might have been because she led 4-2 in the third set and the match was on her racket. And Iga Shontek won 16 of 20 points four games in a row and won it, which... You know, it, it, it's all very well saying, well, she's one and one, she's very good, yes, but like Savalenka only had to hold serve there um, once realistically to stop the rot, and I think that would have got her over the line. Uh, she came into press wearing the biggest mirrored sunglasses you've ever seen and a hat pulled very down low, and well, you know, she just about kept it together, although she started the press conference in tears, so it's never a good 
good way to do it. Um, George, before we talk about the final, I mean, is Arena Sabalenka ever going to make a Grand Slam final? Because that's three semi-finals now, and t- to be honest, she looks to have crumbled under the pressure of each one. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I, I think she had a really good tournament. I think she's had some pretty uh, pretty testing matches along the way. Um, Collins, who obviously dispatched Osaka, was like fourth round. That's not an easy match. Um, Kaliskova. And then, you know, she got off to a flyer, didn't she, against Fiontech and then just sort of went away. I mean, the third set was decent, pretty close. But I don't know. I mean, she's a, she, it's a really difficult one, isn't it? I, I still think she probably will win a slam at some point just by virtue of there'll be one where everyone falls apart and she'll just kind of get through. But there is that little block, isn't there? Um, that said... There's no shame in losing to Sviontek at the minute. And frankly, I thought Sviontek, given the form she was in coming into the tournament, I thought she'd lose to Pagula in the 20 quarterfinals. I really had a feeling that Pagula could be the champion here. And she, she took care of that. I mean, the second set was really tight, really high quality. Um, but I, I think she she's had two really tough matches to get to this final as well. And, and Jabor has been you know, comfortably the second best player in the world the last four months. So this is a great final and just the sort of thing we want for women's tennis you know top top ranked players meeting each other in big big matches you, you say Irina Sabalenka um, will eventually win one but I, and there is a mental block I just want to give you a stat which is that she's 6-0 and in matches this year in Grand Slams where she's lost the first set and she is 0-3 mm. or sorry no she's not 0-3 I should say each time she has lost in Grand Slams this year, she has won the first set. And that's also yeah. true of, I think, her semi-final against Pliskova in Wimbledon last year. She won the first set and then went to pieces a bit. Um, and then she lost to Fernandez in her other semi-final in the US Open, so it was kind of forgivable. I think I saw that that record actually really extends a lot further as well. Like, I think in terms of kind of career Grand Slam, she's got like a really... I mean, she has obviously lost matches where she's not won the first set as well. But um, sorry, when she, yeah, when she's not won the first set as well. But she's, it's it's weird, like the flip between the two, like how the percentage of how many matches she's losing when she's a setup compared mm. to when she like loses the first one. Which, you know, you kind of, it's really hard to like be like, oh yeah, she's got a rubbish mentality when she's actually she does pretty well when she like recovers from a set down. It's almost like she's just not a good front runner. Like people used to talk about Federer being so good as a front runner. Like what if he wins the first set, you're never getting back to him. And then there are some players who are, you know, really dogged and determined from behind. And I don't know that momentum swing after, after a first set can, can be really um, crucial, I suppose. And maybe that's the thing. I don't really know how you work on that, to be honest, James. Well, yeah. And without wanting to, um, without wanting to reopen an enormous can of worms, uh, I've been thinking a lot about best of three and best of five this fortnight, and I've come to the conclusion oh. that men's and women's should be best of five from the quarterfinals onwards and best of three before then. We will talk more about that at length when we have time, but I'm just saying that I'm going to put that out there as my big plan, and people can think about it and disagree with it, and then we can talk about it maybe during a Christmas episode or something like that. Um, let's talk about the the final then because we've spoken about um, I mean we've not really spoken about Caroline Garcia I have talked about her lots on the podlets she's yeah. played brilliant tennis for the best part of a couple of months and then she was beaten by Onsjabur and didn't play well 
I asked her afterwards, did you ever consider stepping back and, you know, giving yourself a bit more time on return because you weren't getting a racket on it? And she said, well, look, this is what's got me this far. I wasn't going to change in the semi-final. It's funny because earlier, you know, we talked about kind of TFA Nadal being the swing match for your fantasy. Um, I, I, I didn't have Garcia and uh, my, my fantasy rivals for the bottles of wine did. And I, so I really needed her to lose that match, else I was going to be two bottles of wine down. Um, but what I, what I would say is like the thing I said the whole tournament about why I wouldn't pick Garcia before the tournament was because I think there is a big mental problem there. And when the finish line is in sight, I don't believe she's going to get over the line. She kind of proved me wrong this tournament. I thought that that moment would come a lot earlier. I thought, you know, there were a lot of issues in terms of like obstacles to face, including like Andre Scoo early on, um, which kind of put me off uh, picking her. So she she did kind of exceed my expectations. But then that collapse, the way she'd been playing compared to how she actually turned up in that semi-final was, was really disappointing. That mm. said, Jabor is tricky, isn't she? I mean, she is, there's not many players like her on the tour. It's a, it's a very different style of game to come up against. So, you know, yeah, it's one of those where you're looking at the draw and I think the same could be said for Medvedev for example on the men's side I think if Medvedev sits in the other half of the draw if Djokovic was here he probably beats Kyrgios fourth round and Medvedev probably reaches the final on the other one it's just the odd awkward opponent for people so Jabor's maybe like that for Garcia as well yeah to an extent and I think it's also worth saying that to be honest Garcia wasn't under pressure in this tournament no one even took her to a tie break never mind took a set of her until she got mm. to the semis she she was just absolutely monstering people I mean I, you asked me off air what I thought the best women's match I've watched this week was and actually you know what what Caroline Garcia did to Coco Goff was really blooming impressive like she just stood inside the baseline and smoked everything that came at her and Coco Goff hit, has hit the fastest serve at this tournament by quite a distance. I think it was the second fastest women's serve in US Open history. And Garcia stood inside the baseline and said, yeah, mate, what have you got? And and it, it worked. So in some ways, I don't think she has proven much about you know the ability to get over the line or, or cope with things mentally. But that's, you know, that that you can't you can only beat what's in front of you. And if you're beating them so well, then we can't say you haven't proved anything. Um, so yeah, I kind of it kind of stands somewhere in the middle on that one. Um, Calvin Beton has joined us, which is great news, uh, of course, as always. Um, and he hasn't heard all the things we said about him in the first fifteen minutes. So that's probably for the best. <laughs> don't, you don't, he doesn't listen back to them. I know for a fact. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about the final in 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 full now. We've just been talking about the women's semi final and about the beaten finalists, but the the beaten semi finalists, I should say. But the women who are through are Iga Shontek and Ons Jabeur. It's probably the final we wanted because it probably is, as George said, the two best players in the world at the moment. Um, Calvin, since you're here, a bit of a tactical matchup. How do you think this one plays out for both women? For each of them, is it the exact person they wouldn't want to face or does it work out all right for them? I don't think it's the person that um, Svantec won't want to face. Um, I don't know if there is one who she won't want to face. I think she probably fancies herself against pretty much anybody. Maybe. Yelena Rostopenko. Uh, that's that's that was just freak though at the start of the year I think wasn't it I, I don't think she I think I think Shrontek would perfect be perfectly happy playing Ostapenko in the final of the slam um, still I, th- I still think the one who she wouldn't want to face at, at full pelt is Osaka because she can just take the racket out of uh, of anyone's hand um, but 
I don't think I don't see see if she'll have any concerns with Deborah. I mean, I think it's it's on it's going to be on um, Schwantek's racket. I think if she holds herself together mentally, uh, which there's no reason to think that she won't, even though she's she's been a bit less dominant in recent months. But if she holds herself together, I don't really see any way that Jabor's going to beat her. And what about the the other way around? If you're on Jabor, um, there's lots of different types of players you can beat. Do, will she just play her own game, or do you think that she'll have to try and exploit certain things? She said. She said before. She said, "I I think I know what I have to do against her now." I, I don't know if you know what that is. Um, I think I, I think there's only really one way that Jabor can play, um, but I still think it's dependent on Schwantek being well off form on the day. I think if Schwantek plays seven out of ten, I, I really don't think Jabor's got anything to worry her. Um, she can't blow her off court. She's got lovely feel. She's really skillful as Jabor, but so is Schwantek. Uh, Schwantek's not worried about a player who has good hands and who can sort of slice and dice it and do a few drop shots and that kind of thing. She can do that herself. Um, she's the most complete player. I'd even go as far as to say she's the most complete women's player that we've seen since peak Serena Williams. Um, it's from tech. Um, and, 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 and Serena Williams never got the credit she was due for being a complete player, as I've said on this podcast before. But I, I think that she, she, she can out-hit players um Schwantek can and she can out skill them she's as good an athlete as there is on tour she's all around it, it, the, every every match she plays is going to be on her racket other than like I say if she plays Osaka on full form George Iga Schwantek the most complete player since Serena Williams reasonable assessment yeah I think so um I think in terms of complete in terms of being able to do absolutely everything I'm not saying she's necessarily been hit the highest level although she you know she has obviously been absolutely fantastic recently you know there's probably a bit of a case for for Barty um perhaps reaching a higher level but there's not that much in it between them I think Sviantec will hit a higher level than Barty I think she's played you know some amazing stuff this year I, I also agree with the final to be honest I I, I, I think Sviantec wins this in straight sets pretty comfortably I, I would say three and four would be my kind of prediction. Um, as Calvin says, there's just certain types of players for me that Jabor will really struggle against. There's people who can hit through her. Um, and Sviantec's also tricky enough to kind of get involved in those engages, but she has got really raw, brilliant power. And, you know, the Wimbledon final with Rubakina, Jabor kind of struggled, I thought, to, to kind of get get into that once um once Rubakina kind of found found her way and I kind of expect Fion to take just to turn up, knows what she's doing, the pressure I mean the pressure's obviously on both of them, but she's been there, done it before, whereas Jabor, this is gonna be a really, really big iconic moment if she can get over the line. Um so yeah, I, I, I fancy Sviontek quite comfortably. I think although I think that the assessment is right that it's the probably the two best female players in the world at the minute I also think it's the worst final for women's tennis because what what we really need in women's tennis is a top class um, women's major final and I don't think we're going to get it again I I think just or just a competitive a a good quality competitive women's final and I I don't think I don't see us getting that again I think any of the other matchups would have been a better matchup in the final and that is definitely a, a clip that could come back to haunt you in about 24 hours, Calvin, couldn't it? That one? Well, most, <laughs> most of my quotes do, so 
<laughs> I'm, I'm confident. You just predicted that she loses in straight sets. I think I think she'll win in straight sets, but I'm not saying it won't be a, a good match. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this has been going on for two. This final sort of curse in the majors has been going on for quite a long time. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm sort of minded to agree with you. I mean, I do look at the semi-final against Garcia and look at the way Shrontek has played over the last, say, well, I would say two weeks, to be honest. And I think that Shrontek is a little bit flawed at the moment. And not, you know, fatally flawed. But I do think that there are chinks in the armour and that she can go away and will have flat bits for 30 or 40 minutes. And it's a question for me whether Jabor can capitalise on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I said before the tournament, I didn't think this Fiontek was playing that that well and you know the the record was becoming a bit funny I, I still don't think she's played anywhere close to the way she was playing in say like april may this year um compared to now but what has been impressive is that every time she seems to be in a hole she is wriggling out of it and that that speaks to me as someone who is peaking at the right times you know actually she's a, probably a player we need to start looking less concernedly about kind of results on the tour now if she's proving she's going to turn up to slams and wriggle out of these moments and kind of you know not necessarily peak in terms of form but peak in terms of that mental toughness to kind of get through matches Mm. and i think what has become evident in those kind of problem solving moments is a her defense is much better than i think people have really given her credit for before like she runs incredibly well she runs balls down very well and also, and this is something that actually I'm kind of ripping off uh, Eurosports, Mertz Verlander, um, who knows what he's talking about um, every now and again, <laughs> and sometimes he says it. Uh, and he made the point that Shontek has such an ability to put so many revs on the ball that she can go to like this sort of high net clearance, high safety game. And you know, when she knows she's not playing well and when she knows she's not, as football managers say, in a good moment... Um, God, I'm doing a lot of accents today. It must be the sleep deprivation. Um, but she can do that, and I think she knows herself well enough to understand when she needs to do that. And I think that's a very valuable skill. Um, so I, I, I think... I, do, I just think Jabour is playing well enough to nick a set one way or another. I think she might find a moment where Shantek goes to pieces a little bit, doesn't quite have the ability to... Um, you know, to, to problem solve her way out of an issue or at least can't do it quickly enough. And I think Jabur is just about good enough to, to pick up a set. But I'm kind of with Calvin in that I am a bit concerned that it might not be a thriller. And as I said before Calvin got here, I think the th- last three matches of a Grand Slam for women should be five sets and you'd have a lot better chance of it being more of a thriller. Because be- I'm, I'm not. No, I really want to make so many points on this, but we just haven't got time. It's it's not the time to do it. I appreciate that. Um, does anyone else have any other thoughts about the women's final or how the women's draw has unfolded up to now, George? I think I think the the only thing I'd say is that you know th- this is another really good chance for Sviontek to really lay down the marker and start this charge to being one of the absolute greats that I think we all think she can be. You know, this would be slam number three, first one off clay. Um, you know, if there's any question mark about Sviontek at, at the minute is, you know, can she start turning multiple slam years in regularly? Um, so I, I think this is another great opportunity to really build the profile of someone who should be leading the sport um, for the next three, four, five, six, maybe 10 years. 
Um, so th- these are the sort of matches I want to see her winning, winning well. Obviously, I hope from a, a neutral perspective we get a good match out of it. But I, I want to see Sfiontek kind of get that dominance going and bring the other players on up with her. I think as well, it's a good point, George, that she should be leading the sport. Um, I wrote something on Twitter and then for the I newspaper um, this week that caused lots of consternation where I pointed out that if we got a Rude versus Rublev US Open men's final, it might be the lowest rated final of all time, um, which got a lot of people's backs up. And I pointed out that of the semi-finalists, or the quarter-finalists as it was then, um, there were several who didn't have much of a profile and people weren't that interested in, i.e. Kasper Ruud, Andre Rublev, Karen Hatchinoff, to an extent Yannick Sinner. I don't think many people know who Yannick Sinner is compared to, like, you know, normal athletes. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about that in the in the second half, probably. But what I wanted to say is that Iga Shontek is both an interesting person, she's she's an interesting player, she's a bloody dominant player as well. As you say, George, not as dominant now as maybe she was four months ago. But she's got it all. Like, she's she's thoughtful, she's interesting, she's quite funny, she's a bit weird, um, and she's also a brilliant tennis player. And so I don't know where the disconnect is that she isn't a household name. And as you say... I think she just has to keep winning Grand Slams. She's won two French Opens, and if you're not Rafa Nadal, the French Open always has a bit less of an impact. Um, and I wonder if that's it. But if she if she if she'd win one Wimbledon, everyone in Britain would know who she was. But she didn't, so they don't. But maybe this could could do, go a long way to kind of pushing her over the edge. George or, or Calvin, why isn't Iga Shontek a worldwide celebrity? I I personally think it's just because of where she's from. Um, you don't get mad. I mean, when was who was the last Polish superstar? No, Robert Lewandowski, I guess. But but is he though? You know, it's like if you were to list the best, he famously has. I don't know if he's won the Ballon d'Or, but he certainly should have won it more than he has. Um, I don't know whether he won it last year, did he? I think they cancelled it the year he was like nailed on to win. So yeah, I'm not sure if he has won it. You know, if 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 if, if Lewandowski was English or French. He'd, I reckon he'd have four or five of them now. Mm. Um, I mean, he's been maybe that. Maybe I'm exaggerating there, four or five, but he's been the best striker in the world for a good five years, I'd say. Um, but and and the same thing. I, I think it's just, yeah, I, I do think it's it's and it's nothing against the Polish. I think you if unless you're from Britain, America, Australia, France, Spain, or Russia. And to a degree, China, but that's strictly limited to China or Asia. You don't get many superstars, I don't mm. think. George. Yeah, I mean, it, I feel like we're in danger of uh, feeding <laughs> feeding a very ugly part of Twitter that is saying there's a Western narrative against kind of people from these regions. But the, but it is there is a degree of truth with that. There is a degree of you know, as stupid as this probably sounds, you know, like the spellings of the names that are harder to pronounce in the Western world when you think of the big powerhouses of media and how they kind of promote people, you know, a, a name with an F-W-I-A-T-E-K isn't as obvious to read as like, a, I don't know, like Messi or Ronaldo. It kind of follows more kind of Western dialogue, I suppose. Um, so, but that said... I don't think there's any reason she can't become the mega superstar we think she can be. The way she does it is 
she is just the mega superstar on court and wins and wins and wins and wins. And to be fair, she actually hasn't done that yet at the Grand Slams. That's mm. the big challenge for her now that will kind of propel her into the stratosphere. Um, I still think she can be. And, you know, Lewandowski is probably a good example in terms of, he, he definitely, for me, is a pretty pretty big superstar now. Um, but, he, but he hasn't always been. And as Calvin said, it's taken longer and longer to get that recognition. Um, so the ball's in her court, if you like, I think, to really kind of smash through that uh, media wall. Yes, to break down the conspiracy against Polish people. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I'm joking, but uh, I think there are valid points there. And yeah, I, I think there is an element to which her name's a bit hard to pronounce and people don't really care to bother to learn how to pronounce people's names. And yes, she, she's from a part of the world that doesn't get much recognition, probably, so... Um, yeah, I think valid points there. Um, coming up next, we're going to talk about the men's final. We'll look back at two, well, at least one amazing semi-final, a week of Carlos Alcaraz late nights, and that famous Twitter thread. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, <sighs> oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So we've talked about the women's final. We've predicted it's going to be rubbish, which is a shame. Um, <laughs> I've <laughs> not predicted that. <laughs> uh, Presumably, we've offended about half of our listeners, for which we apologise. Uh, but it's time to talk about the men's final. We've got Casper Ruud up against Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, the French Open finalist, Casper Ruud, up against the man we think will win many Grand Slams. I think 53 is George's last count. And this is his first opportunity to win one. Carlos Alcaraz, who was also responsible for three of the latest tennis nights of my life, he has been on court this week for 13 hours and 19 minutes. His earliest finish was last night, which was 10 past 12. He has previously finished at 2.30, 2.50. It's all getting a bit silly, quite frankly, for a 19-year-old. He needs to get in bed earlier on. Um, I wrote something the other day that he's, he's like most teenagers, he's likely to be up at all hours, but in fact he would probably much rather be asleep. Um, He's George, you're you you're throwing your hand up with your with your mic on mute, which is always a bold thing to do. Um, why don't you tell us what you've got to say? I was I was just I was actually going to ask James because I know you're 
you're on site and might have seen some kind of media statistics, but has a player ever won a Grand Slam winning four five setters in a row? If the final uh, were three, to... three five setters in a row. But I'm just saying, if the final went to five sets as well, has anyone ever um, done four in a row? So the last two people have won uh, Grand Slams after back-to-back five-setters. I don't know about back-to-back-to-back-to-back, <laughs> but I do know that two people have won uh, Grand Slams after going to back-to-back five-setters. Do, do you so have Djokovic a guess? Is one. Djokovic has won against Murray and Nadal, 2012 Australia. So, sorry, uh, after back-to-back. So he's got to be back-to-back, like quarter-final, semi-final. Ah, uh, right. I see. Oh, basically, crikey. basically, okay. I, I'm almost certain you're not going to get this because it's Stefan Edberg at the 1992 US Open <laughs> final, and then it's Gustavo Quirton, um I'm pretty sure the 1997 French Open. Uh, so yeah, it, it, look, put it this way: people don't do it very often. Um, Men to win back-to-back five setters en route to a Grand Slam singles title. So that actually, I think, could mean any round. Um, Federer at the Australian Open in 2017, three of the last four went to five sets. Um, I'm also told that Edberg's, uh, in that 1992 run, Edberg played the longest match ever at the US Open, and Carlos Alcaraz's match against Marin Cilic was the second longest match ever. Um, although how much of that was Marin Cilic bouncing the ball hasn't been recorded, but I, I can only assume <laughs> quite a lot of it, uh, quite frankly. Um, I've already spoken about Alcaraz Sinner, and it will have taken place at the early hours of the morning in the UK, as did, frankly, Alcaraz Tierfo, um, which was electric on so many levels. I mean, I remember Murray Otter which I appreciate wasn't like, you know, a particularly seismic match. But Andy Murray against Oscar Rotta under the roof at on Centre Court at Wimbledon was insanely loud. Like, I don't remember being in a tennis stadium that loud. And I think last night tops it. Because it, it was amazing, really. Because what you had was, for people who don't know Arthur Ashe Stadium, you've got a lower bowl, which is like, you know, the first tier of expensive seats. Then you've got a ring of corporate boxes, which are really expensive. And then you've got the upper tier, which is blooming high. And anyone who's been on my Instagram this week will know it's very, very high, which is cheaper seats. And typically on a normal week, you know, they can go for about $40. So, you know, well, about 40 quid now because the pound doesn't mean anything. Um, so, you know, they're, they're vaguely affordable. And what you had was down the bottom, every time TFO won a point, all the Americans, who were clearly people with money in the lower bowl, would go mental. And then when Alcaraz won a point, all the Spanish and the Spanish-speaking fans, who were clearly up the top, would go crazy. And it was it was this bizarre dynamic where you had it was almost like a football crowd because there genuinely were two segregated groups of fans. And the noise when Carlos Alcaraz ran down three drop shots and then ran back to the baseline and flipped a forehand passing shot past TFO the noise that everyone made which can only be described as like an oh shit uh, was it will just live with me forever and Francis TFO gave as good as he got he won two tie breaks he saved a match point in the fourth set 
he saved a match point and he went over to his corner. Well, uh, sorry, a corner. And he just said, I'm putting my heart on the fucking line. I'm putting my heart on the line. Let's go. And I think, you know, Francis TFO, we used to just think of as just an entertainer. He's an entertainer, but he's also bloody talented. And I think we'll be back at this level again. Yeah, I, I, this was a really significant for TFO on a lot of levels. Um, I think I think you mentioned the tie breaks there, James. I think I'm pretty sure I saw a stat about him winning eight tie breaks this tournament without losing one, um, and that's some sort of Grand Slam record in the men's game. Um, but you know that that really speaks volumes of kind of how well he's playing in, in big moments in matches because tie breaks are always very tense, often seen as a coin toss. You know, it can go either way um so that that was really impressive in itself but yeah this was really the first time where i've kind of thought of, thought about tfo being a future slam champion i didn't really believe to be honest beforehand but the level he's kind of brought the win over nadal okay where nadal's at not quite sure at the minute you know you you mentioned in your pod earlier in the week james about you know there's been a lot going on in his personal life and we're still not sure if he was kind of fit or not as well so you know but either way to beat Nadal is really impressive at a Grand Slam because that guy just doesn't go away and you have to beat him and TFO brought that and and he brought it to Alcaraz as well I mean he took it to Rublev who okay he's not necessarily having the best season but he's played really well at this tournament and he's completely dismantled Norrie who's you know not not easily dismantled either so yeah I've been really really impressed by him it was his his post match speech was actually quite the on court one. I mean, was uh, quite uh, quite sad really when he said he felt like he'd let everyone down. Uh, mm. You know, I don't think that at all. But he did also say, "I promise you, I'm going to come back and win this. Um, it's going to be tough." You know, Alcaraz is five six years younger than he is, so he's only going to get better and better. So that that you know that's where the bar's going to go. But TFO's really up the stakes this weekend it's only a good thing for francis tfo to be playing well a big american male star would be massive for tennis Mm. right now yeah and he i think what's exciting about him and and calvin will probably be able to speak to this on a a more interesting level is that he seems to have a lot of room for improvement you know he served at 46 percent first serve last night that doesn't win you a lot of matches and he got blooming close to beating carlos alcaraz his backhand is bizarre. I mean, it's this kind of janky shovel of a shot and it doesn't really have anything on it and you'd feel there's a lot he could do with that to get better. So, I mean, Calvin, when you look at players, I know you're always looking at where they can go and what you can do with them. TFO must be a guy you look at and go, crikey, there's some raw material here. Yeah, without doubt, he should be a top 10 in the world player. Um, He's got everything that's required to be a top 10 in the world player. He just, I don't think it's even a technical thing with him or anything to do with his shots. He just doesn't seem to be able, it's a consistency thing for him. It's getting result after result, week after week. Um, and every time he looks like taking off. And I I don't want to criticize him um, this week because he's had a really good tournament. But you feel that he has to start winning those matches time and again that's what Alcaraz mm. is doing he's winning mm. the five setters and it's like last year at Wimbledon he beat Tsitsipas and then did he lose next round um, what, a great, what a great question uh, yeah I, I don't know whether it was it, it might have won another round or something it might have gone but he didn't go deep into the tournament and this one that's always been 
TFO's problem. He can play one great match and then sometimes two, but not three. And that's mm. what you've got to do. You've got to... I, I, he's capable of beating anybody in the world, as we've seen. Mm. Um, but he, he just doesn't do it. And I really hope he does because there you do have, when we're talking about potential superstars, you have one who I think could be the biggest superstar in tennis. Mm. He's, I, I really do think that he's everything that people think that Nick Kyrgios is. And they're wrong about Nick Kyrgios. <laughs> I mean, what people also probably don't know is Francis TFO has an amazing story. His parents were immigrants to America from Sierra Leone. His dad started, well, got a job working, building a tennis centre. When they finished building it, he got the job as head of maintenance. And his kids basically just sort of picked up tennis rackets from there and, you know, managed to get a few lessons and... And it just, it snowballed from there. You know, he is a sort of, he's a little bit self-taught. It's why when you look at his backhand, it looks a bit weird. And I watched his serve a lot last night and it's so easy. Like there's not a lot going on. There's not a lot of backbend. It, it's just kind of easy power. And it is an absolute weapon as well, by the way. Um, and I think that story creates so much for people to kind of latch onto. I, I literally texted my missus last night. And was like, you know, this guy, he lost, but this is him. And she was like, oh, that's amazing. What a guy, Calvin. He, he, he does have a great story, phenomenal story. And he's, but he's also a great guy. He's an absolute dude yeah. on the court, on in, in press conferences, when he's interviewed on the court. He's just so open and natural. And there's no airs and graces about him. And he's so charismatic, so funny. He'd just be great if we had him. At the back end of every tournament, I've no. I think you can in, increase tennis's sort of popularity by ten percent just by having Francis Tiafoe at the back end of every tournament. And, and on that, I, I don't know whether any of the listeners are interested, but I do have some footage of Tiafoe when he was fourteen at Tabs. Um, maybe we could put it on the the Love Tennis um, Twitter feed. Mm. Um, might be interesting just to see players uh, that would have been. Well, how old is he now? He's in ninety eight, isn't he? So he'd be twenty four. 24 yeah that'd be 10 years ago yeah just to kind of back up calvin's point about this guy not going deep at big tournaments one previous quarterfinal australia got battered by nadal not been to the quarters of a slam since i think the more telling one for me actually is that he's only reached one quarterfinal at a masters which is mm, kind of crazy yeah. considering how good he is you know this year he's had third round in new wales fourth round miami First round Madrid, first round Rome, second round uh, Rogers Cup, second round Cincinnati. Like, that's not good enough for a guy this good. Mm. Um, so he's really got to bring that consistency to his game. And it's not, George, it's not that he's, he's not, we're not looking like a Berrettini, say, here, where you go, he just can't beat the top players. That's not his problem. It's losing to just guys who he shouldn't be losing to yeah. week after week mm. at the majors, at the majors and at the, the masters. Um, that's his problem. I mean, in fairness, the four guys he's lost to over the summer have been like Kyrgios, Alcaraz, I think Corda, and Fritz. So they're not all, in isolation, they're not terrible losses, I suppose. Like all of them have kind of shown good form at different points this year. But, you know, it's the wins over Corda and Fritz you've got to start delivering regularly to kind of move ahead of that level. Yeah. Losses to Alcaraz and Kyrgios, you want to make them 50 50, really. Yeah. It's it's also worth noting that he's only been seeded at Grand Slams for the last three, I think. So Roland Garros this year was his first seeding at a Grand Slam. So that 
makes life a bit harder. You know, as we know from Andy Murray talking about how much he wants to be seeded at Grand Slams, for example, and albeit it's a different situation, it's the same idea. You want to find your place in a draw much easier than than if you're not seeded. So, you know, that will that will make a difference, I'm sure. Uh, he was world number 26 coming into this tournament. He's going to go up to world number 19, so inside the top 20 for the first time in his career. Um, and I think probably you would expect with a few hardcore tournaments coming up that he, he continues that rise. I can't imagine he's defending loads of points off the top of my head, but I can't actually remember what he was up to this time last year. He might have been playing on the clay in South America or something, because I know he did a lot of that. Um, let, let's move on. I, I'm not going to talk about Karen Hatchoff a huge amount, because I don't know how much there is to say about Karen Hatchinoff. Like, he's got an enormous serve. It's very good. It's not fascinating to watch. Um, and Kasper Ruud nullified it. I, I guess the one thing to say, and maybe, George, this is a good way to segue into the final, is Kasper Ruud served extremely well against Karen Hatchinoff. Um, I think only 16% of his first serves were returned, as I, as I recall. Oh, no, sorry. I've confused this stat. Let me go again. Some 33% and... Six, I can't remember this blooming stat. It was really good and it's gone out of my head. George, <laughs> tell, tell me about how Kasper Rude's an underrated server. Yeah, I think I think he is a good server. He's got a very big forehand as well. So he, he's actually a decent one-two puncher as well as kind of having this kind of grindy um, style. I think there was actually some really, really good stats while I was watching this match on Amazon and Mark Petchy was talking about this. They were comparing like rotations on the ball. Right. So obviously like everyone knows Nadal has been famed for the amount of rotations he puts through his forehand or whatever. Um, and I can't really remember the figures he's reached, but very, very high. But Rude's were also very, very high. So on the, on the forehand, it was like average 3,200 rotations, which is a lot. Like mm. I probably should know it's high. Um, and Kachanovs was around two seven hundred, two eight hundred. What was really interesting was how many rotations were on the two-handed backhand. Like they were numbers you'd expect for a one-hander. Yeah. So it was around like two thousand seven hundred, two thousand eight hundred for a two-hander. Like mm. I think that's a quite underrated part that you maybe not see unless you're watching this guy live. Like the amount of spin he's putting through that backhand, big top spin, heavy pushing people back. That's really impressive figures. I think Hatchinovs were something like 1,200 <laughs> like by comparison on his backhand. So, you know, Hatchinovs got quite a flat flat backhand and I suppose you'd say like the rude ones maybe a little bit safer. But I, I found that really interesting. That, and I, I think this is, again, a problem tennis has when you watch it on telly that you wouldn't necessarily see that watching that that well. And you'd only start to see it if you kind of hear a comment and then go and watch it live and see how much that backhand's kind of kicking up but yeah i thought thought that was a good analysis by amazon yeah it is actually very interesting and it's something that i never appreciated about rafa nadal really until i watched him live and actually until i saw him practice live which where you can get as close as you can to to the ball bouncing quite frankly and that that really gave me a sense of exactly how insane you know the amount of spin this guy puts on the ball and how difficult that makes him to play against really is um, I don't know if I always appreciated that. Um, Calvin, do you think Kasparud is just overall a bit underrated? I mean, look, if he's one match away from being world number one and US Open champion um, because whoever wins this match will be world number one on Monday. Do you think if that happens, people will probably take the piss out of him a bit? 
I mean, I saw a stat. I saw not a stat. I saw a fact the other day that if Francis Tiafoe won the U.S. Open, Casper Ruud would be world number one without ever winning a title above a two fifty. Mm. <laughs> um, which, listen, right? Casper Ruud's not the best tennis player in the world, whether he wins or loses tomorrow. So uh, I've I've been a big defender of the rankings in recent weeks, um, in the face of Nick Kyrgios's ramblings that he just thinks he should be world number one based on nothing. <laughs> Um, because he thinks he's good. Yeah. Um, but um, I, that would be an anomaly if if Casper Ruud was world number one. I think, mm. and that's no criticism of him. But does anybody? Would anybody really think that he's the best tennis player in the world? Because um, I wouldn't, and I, I don't think he's going to win. I, I think unless unless Alcaraz has a meltdown, he's going to beat him. That's that's there's I'm certain of that. I think we're in a really interesting phase of the men's rankings now um, because, you know, <laughs> Rude could potentially be world number one for like three weeks. The gap's going to be that small, whoever wins this thing. Like there will be great opportunities for kind of Nadal and Alcaraz to pass him. Well, Nadal probably won't play that much in the back end of the season, but Alcaraz might kind of run and charge through, etc. But um, I, th- I think I read the other day on Twitter that Djokovic, the what the the record for like the most ranking points for world number one is around 16,000. And that's about 10,000 more than these three guys have right now in terms of the live ranking. So one of them will kind of pass the 6,000 mark, but, but that kind of gives you a sense of like, not how easy it is to be world number one, but how less of an obstacle it is given, you know, Rude's been to two grand slam finals this year. That's a big, big old chunk of points. Hmm. Not having Nadal, at, not having Djokovic at two majors has probably allowed people in, to be honest. Because let's be honest, he's the best player in the world for me still. Um, and he's down to world number seven now, which shows you what weight missing these tournaments has. Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because Medvedev, I mean, no one got ranking points at Wimbledon, so that takes some of yeah. the validity. And that is of a big factor, to be out. fair. You know, and that, that does change things. Um, I think if Berrettini had got ranking points at Wimbledon, he's Berrettini's going to actually plummet in the rankings because he's obviously defended 2,000 unsuccessfully. Um, but then if you look at almost anyone, really, in the top 20, about half of them did well at Wimbledon, about half of them didn't. So if you take that into consideration, you just completely reshuffle the rankings. Um, I don't I, I don't know... It, it is difficult. You want the rankings to be right. I think people will say, uh, I spoke to Muratogli the other day and he said the rankings are the rankings, you know, and I was like, well, that's a bit of a truism that I'm not sure it necessarily <laughs> applies. Wonderful <laughs> insight. Cheers. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's sort of, I kind of see where he's coming from. Like, Casper Rude will sit in a press conference if he's world number one and say, I'm world number one. Suck that. And, I, I, you know, just going back to the match itself, I mean, Rude, I thought, played pretty well, actually, in the French Open final. I don't think he was that overawed. It's just that Nadal's better than him. Um, mm. So I, I think, to be fair to Casper Rude, he's he, he's grown up a lot the last kind of two years. He's He is a talented player. As Calvin says, he's not the best player in the world, but actually he is, he is making big matches. He's performing well in slams. 
um, and he's really improved his game on a hard court. You know, we we've taken the the mick out of him in the past for kind of turning up into those three clay events at the back of Wimbledon and winning three titles or whatever. You know, he he's he's turning up to big events and he's beating good players at this tournament again. You know, and, okay, not not the strongest in the history of slams in terms of runs, but he, he I think we do we do need to kind of say he's done well and. It wouldn't surprise me that much if he did actually beat Alcaraz in a weird way. I think Alcaraz is a comfortably better player, but I'd make this final much closer on paper than I do the women's one. I think Kasparu is very good at nullifying big serves. You know, he's beaten Hatchinoff and Berrettini in the last two rounds and pretty comfortably. Like Hatchinoff nicked the third set in the semi final, yeah. you know, breaking at 5 6, which, funnily enough, he did to Kyrgios twice. Um, but realistically Rude was much better than him almost throughout and I think Rude's as I say I think he's excellent yeah. against the big server and nullifying them what but Alcaraz has no serve to speak of like he does not rely on serve really on any level and actually it was probably the weakest element of his game against Tiafo. um albeit he served pretty well against Sinner so you say well okay you got to out rally him and I just think that Rude's baseline game is just constantly looking for that inside-in forehand. And I think if you're going to spend your life hitting inside-in forehands against the fastest guy on tour and the best guy hitting off balance, you know, if he's running into that forehand corner, I think you're going to get yourself in trouble quite a lot. And just to dampen all the, all of your the listeners' enthusiasm, um, Alcaraz has won every set they've played. <laughs> Have they been close? Did lots of the games go to juice, perhaps? Well, I w- I would say the the score in <clears throat> in Miami was fairly close. Seven five six four in the final there that Alcaraz won. So that, I bet loads of those close-ish. games went to juice. So loads of them, all of them went to juice. <laughs> um, Calvin, when you look at these two games, I mean, I know you've already said you think Alcaraz will beat him, but like if if Rude is to beat him, what does he do? Is it, is it you know nailing him to the backhand corner? Is it trying to do things a bit differently I, I, really, I really don't know I'm glad I'm not Rude's coach um, <laughs> going into that I'd have to come up with a game plan that I don't I wouldn't have any belief in um, it's one of those that they, they play similar and Alcaraz I, look they play very similar games and Alcaraz hits the ball about 7 or 8% harder maybe not that even if it's 2% harder or 3% harder and if you play, if you play backhand to backhand, or forehand to forehand, and one player hits the ball on average at sixty miles an hour, and the other player hits the ball at sixty-two miles an hour, there's only going to be one winner there, hmm. because that the, that the other the slower player's backhand will be will break down before the other guy's backhand because the ball's coming through a little bit faster, and I don't I don't see I really don't understand what the route to victory is for Kasper Ruud. I'll watch it because I'll be interested to see what he does, but I think it's all going to depend on how Alcaraz turns up. Alcaraz turns up and again, if Alcaraz can play even if Alcaraz plays 6 out of 10, Ruud's going to have to play 9 out of 10 to win. If Alcaraz plays 7 out of 10, I don't think there's any way Ruud can win. The thing I've been impressed with by Rude that maybe I haven't been so impressed with in the past is like that that one-two punch on serve and forehand. I do think people are underestimating how much he's improved kind of in that 
in that arena, particularly on a hard court. Um, so, you know, when Cam was talking about uh, Rude playing nine out of ten, I think the serve is going to be really bloody important for him. He needs to get on top in those rallies quickly. He needs to be putting the ball away quite quickly, um, and, which I think he's capable of doing. And actually, at the French Open against Nadal, there were points he was actually very much on top of him. The issue then became killing Nadal, like actually seeing him off in these rallies. Like there were so many chances he had to actually win points well from the way of setting up. And you're like, how on earth is Nadal getting to these balls? The issue for him is Alcaraz will probably get to even more freakish balls than Nadal can on clay because he is ludicrously quick, ludicrously flexible and just seems to never tire, which yeah, is a pretty lethal combination before you even get onto the fact he hits the ball bloody well as well. So, yeah, it's going to be a big challenge. I do kind of fancy Rude to get a set. I don't, I've don't. i watched bits and pieces of Alcaraz. I don't think he's playing as well as he was earlier in the year. I think there are a few more chinks in the armour. I think there are chinks in the armour mentally as well, which sounds really odd. No, I, he's just I, won three bets of five sets, but I think there are chinks of armour compared to kind of that early first quarter of the year. No, I think that's absolutely spot on, actually. And, you know, <laughs> I have to say, off-court coaching has helped Carlos Alcaraz a hell of a lot in this <laughs> in this tournament. Like, he, there's been a number of times when he's walked to the end Juan Carlos Ferrer is at, and he just looks lost. And there was one point where he was walking over to him, and because I was following Jose Morgado on, on Twitter, who understands Spanish, because he's Portuguese, and I understand there's some cognate language there, and he said that Alcaraz was saying tell me what to serve, I don't know what to serve. And I think Ferrero is not shy of just telling him what to serve because even before the off-court coaching was allowed, Ferrero was coaching. So um, I, th- I think it's interesting that, that that's definitely a thing. And it should be said, Sinner let him off the hook badly twice in that final. He should have won that fourth set. It was a yeah. break-up in the fifth and he played a couple of stinking games straight after that. But he, yeah. it, it was an Alcaraz really turning that around as much as Sinner getting tight, I thought, um, mm. from where I was sitting, which I know, James, you were there. You might have a different perspective on that in the stands, but it, it felt Sinner had that match on his rackets. He was playing as well as Alcaraz. It was a brilliant match, but then he just just got a little bit tight in those big moments and it cost him. Yeah, but I think, I think Alcaraz can make you tight as well, I think, because you yeah. have to go for the lines a bit more. I mean, speaking of going for the lines, I mean... Carlos Alcaraz painted that court last night. Like, it was already painted, and Alcaraz made sure. Because, I mean, there were, even in the first set alone, there were probably four different occasions when Alcaraz hit a shot, it went par TFO, and he just stood there with his hands on his hips and went, I don't understand how you've clipped the line again. And then he'd ask for the review on the screen, and it would have clipped, you know, the smallest part of the line you could possibly find. I mean, it was completely ridiculous. Like, I've never seen anything like it. And I think that makes you tight. And I think the fact that he runs everything down means that you think, oh, oh here's an easy put-away forehand. No, hang on, it's not an easy put-away forehand. It's Carlos Alcaraz. I'm going to have to stick it in the corner. Oh, look, I've missed it. And And look. We've spoken a bit about kind of how significant this win would be for Sviontek in building her profile. I mean, you cannot underestimate the stratospheres Alcaraz can start going to if this guy just starts picking up slam after slam. This is a massive match again for tennis in terms of this platform to build a major star. If if anything, it's a slight shame it's not Alcaraz against one of the big three. 
or big four you know that mm. that's the sort of match you want in this situation that's perhaps what's lacking but if we get Alcaraz winning this coming into Australia whatever he'd be ranked potential final with like Novak there that's that's what tennis needs right now is this amazing player playing the best players in the world winning big titles and then beating guys like Djokovic in slams um yeah, there's 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 a kind of dream dream scenario where it's Alcaraz Djokovic in the Australian Open final next like next uh, January, and it actually doesn't matter who wins at that point because Alcaraz... if Djokovic is allowed in the country, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's <laughs> so technically so. banned. Um, Calvin, I just wanted to ask you because I mentioned it there, and it, it made me think that I hadn't spoken to you about it about the off court coaching. Um, and I know we've spoken a bit about it more generally, but I've had the chance to see it up close now and and hear it because they've they've mic'd the coaches' boxes quite well. Um, and it's in- been interesting how some coaches say almost nothing, some use a lot of hand signals, some say lots. Um, I was watching the doubles finals yesterday, which we haven't mentioned, by the way, Joe Salisbury and Reggie Ram retaining their doubles title, first men's doubles US Open retention for 25 years since the Woodies. Um, but they beat Wes Kuhlhoff and Neil Skupski, and at one point Rob Morgan was standing up saying to Wes and Neil, keep talking to each other, you know, don't keep doing it, you've got to do it, keep talking to each other. And I thought that was interesting contrast to other coaches who've been giving lots of tactical advice from the sidelines. And I wonder whether you thought if you were in a situation where you were allowed to to off court coach, what you would err on. I mean, obviously it varies from player to player, but what would your preference be? Do you want to be saying, you know, go T on this serve more, or do you want to be saying just, you know, settle yourself down, work this out, blah blah blah? Um, I think it depends on the context of the match. If if the player isn't i mean i have no problem admitting i do plenty of off court coaching anyway always have um <laughs> and there was a situation a, a few years ago uh where a couple of lads who i was coaching in doubles um they kept one of the players kept taking the sudden death juices and it was against the left-hander and he had a particular technical problem that was causing a problem there and he kept taking it and i physically stood up and shouted because it was getting towards the end of the match and they'd done it again and I physically stood up and shouted, told them to, for the other player to take the Sunday juice. Yeah. And I got a warning for it, but they ended up winning the match. They, ended, they won that Sunday juice and got a warning. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't mind. But um, yeah, the, what I will say is for, I always think if you want to know who the best coaches are, look at the guys who are more concise and are giving direct, specific information and not just rambling white noise all the time because when you're on the match court the player on the match court they won't take in a whole lot of information yeah if you say to them something serve t then or more depth or something some you know three or four word i I once heard a a comment that that any sort of coaching statement should be it should you should be able to put it on the front of a t-shirt or on a (laughs) post-it note um and that that's what you want so if you see anyone who's just shouting endlessly talking endlessly i always tend to think they're a bit of a blagger and they don't know specifically what they should be saying and it's not helping the player i've got real visions of calvin like coaching a top 10 player in the future at a grand slam and to get around the coaching laws he's just got a load of different t-shirts he keeps telling him i've got i i can't tell it on air but i've got a phenomenal not from me but from a, a a player's parent a phenomenal um, hand signal story uh, <laughs> for off-court coaching. 
So, uh, uh, this is great. This is something that if you subscribe to Love Tennis Podcast Extra, uh, yeah. which doesn't exist, but you know, yeah. make me an offer in my DMs and <laughs> we'll see what we can arrange. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell I'll tell you two about it when we finish the podcast because you this is brilliant. It might be <laughs> the funniest thing I've ever experienced in coaching. I think I mean honestly that might be the way to launch our subscription service, yeah. uh, which which isn't a plan yet, but or really ever. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's been interesting nevertheless to to see the off court coaching. I think it has added something. Um, you know, I, I've often if I'm on court, I've often got like a live stream and stick headphones on, and it definitely it seems to add something. What well, what I will say, James, and I was trying to get 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 there is I think the one during the the intensity of a match, there are certain things that players won't see. And, and that coaches will. And I think that's where it could make a difference, where you can just, you can look at it and go, you, you know, that they've not noticed this, this is a thing. And I think that's where, where high-level coaching really is. And as I often say, because my, my dad always comes with this one all the time, like, why does Federer have a coach? No one can tell him how to, how to play tennis. That's not really what it's about. It's, it's another pair of eyes to help out. And, um, and I think that's where it, we could see a, a big difference. In using, I think it's great, and I think it's great that they're micing up um, the coaches' boxes. Think it adds something; it'll add uh, an extra dimension to to the the watching value of tennis as well mm. as a spectator sport. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I learned a huge amount from what Will Mayer, Nick Kyrgios's physiotherapist, is saying to him every point. But but you know, but even even that, even that, I will admit was vaguely interesting. Just just the kind of things they were trying to get Nick to do because well, they tell him to do some stretches or something <laughs> <laughs> well no because I, I, his I physio is basically his mate yeah I found that bizarre that that Nick Kyrgios again I've, I've got to criticize him again here right and you know he's played brilliantly this week you know you've got to give him credit for it in the last two weeks uh, all summer really but he's there he's makes a decision that he brags about all the time that he doesn't have a coach in his box but then criticizes the people who are in his box for not knowing in not knowing as much about tennis as he does you can't have it both ways i think i might apply the dan evans rule to this which is i once asked dan evans why he said something he said on court and he said you can't pay attention to what i say when i'm on court it doesn't mean <laughs> anything um which i think is probably pretty accurate like uh, kyrgios oversteps the line on a regular basis on the court but his sort of meaningless chunterings probably pretty irrelevant um george i'm gonna ask you for your full prediction for the men's final i need a set count and a winner yeah i think uh alcaraz in four rude to win the third set in a, a well, late that, rally that is specific uh calvin you don't have to be as specific as that i just need a winner and a set count uh i think um alcaraz are winning straights I think I'm going to have to agree with George, and I hate that. I really want to say Alcaraz in five, just because I think four or five sets in a row would be amazing. That would I, be fun. But I, I think probably four. Um, I'll throw it open to any other business if anyone has any, but I don't think we're going to have any. George, you've always got something. Uh, How's your knee? My knee's, yeah, knee's going quite well. I've, I've increased my uh, capabilities of what I can lift now. I'm quite pleased. And Actually, I can tell you my fun headline news, James, is I've lost five kilograms in the last month. So I was That's quite pleased with myself this news, morning. Mate. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pass comment on that as a man who could do with losing about ten kilograms. So well done. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, thank you very much for listening. As always, I really hope you enjoy the finals. Uh, they're nine o'clock BST kickoff. So that's nine p.m. Saturday night and Sunday night. 
Um, I'll be out here in New York. Do follow me on Twitter. I'll try and do a podlet before I leave New York on Monday after the final. Um, the night, morning after the night before, as it will be. Uh, but otherwise, thank you very much for listening and please do come back next time. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.